What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 20 of The Vast Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Michael. And the goal of this podcast is to help curious people think more deeply about the gospel and how it informs their whole lives. Today on the podcast, we talk with Dr. Sam Storms. Sam is a Calvinist, charismatic, always an interesting mix, uh, an amillennial theologian, teacher, and author. He is currently pastor of Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City and is the author of over 20 books. I believe I've read five or six of his works. Love them all so much. He serves as a member of the Council uh, for the Gospel Coalition. And we have a wide-ranging conversation with Sam about spiritual gifts, demons, being bored with God, and of course, deconstruction. Before we jump into this, if you're loving the podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube and rate the show. It really helps us a whole lot. Leave a comment, share it around to some folks that you think would enjoy it. It's such a massive help in helping us get the word out. Also, make sure that you're following us on Instagram at vast.faith. Sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all that's happening. And you can do that by going to our website, which is www.vast.faith. Okay. Let's jump into this conversation with Dr. Sam Storms, and we'll see you back here next week. Pleasure to have you on our podcast. Really, honestly, honored. I've read, I believe, five of your uh, books, everything ranging from your eschatology to gifts of the Holy Spirit. Just finished up, I guess, one of your older works, Pleasures Evermore, because mm-hmm. I recommended to me by a friend and found to be incredibly insightful um, and helpful from a discipleship standpoint. I was actually first introduced to you by watching a a video. You have a video on YouTube called An Evening of Eschatology. I was going to tell you, I bet that's the one. That's the one. I I go into restaurants. Literally, this is not a... My wife and I were driving through a Chick-fil-A not long ago, and the guy taking our order kept looking at me funny, and (laughs) finally he took my credit card. He looked at it, and he went, Evening of eschatology. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think I've probably watched that entire conversation four times. Oh, my. Yeah. I loved it. And I don't know. It's just so helpful. I don't have any formal theological training myself. So uh, I'm, I'm a danger even to myself. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I found it to be incredibly helpful and have since read your book, Kingdom Come. Um. And are you, do you know a man named David Campbell? I know that name. Tell me. He's a, um, a biblical scholar based out of Canada. He did a work with G.K. Beale um, on his, uh, quote, shorter commentary on the book of yeah. Revelation. Okay, that's where I've heard it. Yeah, in fact, I'm, I'm looking over here, my commentaries on Revelation. I see it right down there, Beale and Campbell. Yep. Yep, that's them. And he has a shorter, an even shorter shorter commentary uh, called Mystery Explained. Um, that's just a verse-by-verse walkthrough of the entire book of Revelation. So I always recommend that to people uh, for the amillennial position because I find it so helpful and so compelling. So anyway, maybe we'll come back to some eschatology stuff towards the end of the conversation. I want to kick things off with the subject of spiritual gifts. Um, as far as I can tell, you've written extensively on the subject of spiritual gifts, practicing the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, I've read your book on tongues. I've read your comprehensive guide to spiritual gifts, and I've read your book, Practicing the Power, all of which I found so helpful. Uh, I love you because you seem to be a bit of an anomaly. You're reformed, yet you're charismatic. Uh, you're a Calvinist, and I like the combination of all three of those <laughs> things. Um, Why don't you just say I'm biblical? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're biblical, and I love it. There you um, go. 
and and it's super good. And I guess kind of on that point, that seems to be a part of your passion for writing on the gifts of the Holy Spirit is that you have a strong conviction around the biblical precedent for them, uh, not just being a good idea, but actually something that is actively working out in a church. To me, that seems to be kind of part of your MO is, uh, and I think you even use this verbiage in Practicing the Power, where you're helping people who are theologically continuationist, yet maybe functionally cessationist. They don't know what to do with it. So I thought maybe a good place to start would be uh, when or where did that passion begin for you? Oh my, that would go back a long time ago to the late 1980s, believe okay. it or not, probably before either one of you was born. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I was born in 88. Ah, that's about the exact time that it happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I had uh, I'd reached a little bit of an impasse in my pastoral ministry in the sense that, um, not that I was considering quitting or anything, but I was frustrated mm-hmm. that I, I couldn't see a breakthrough in people's lives. And we just seem to be doing the same things in a redundant and lifeless and powerless fashion. And, uh, I just, uh, had an encounter with a seminary classmate of mine by the name of Jack Deere and Jack and I connected and he began, uh, directing me to certain resources that he had just discovered as well. And, um, just through my study and, uh, prayer and really just pressing into these things, I came to the conviction that I couldn't defend cessationism uh, from Scripture. And uh, that just kind of set me on a journey. And for whatever reason, God uh, visited me and my wife in some very supernatural ways that we necessarily weren't even looking for or asking for. Um, and it just awakened in us uh, uh, the realization of the power of the Holy Spirit uh, for changing lives, for exalting Christ. Um, and so that just kind of set me on a journey. And I, I think I, I think probably most Christian pastors or theologians or however you want to classify them feel as if God has called them uh, not just in general to preach the word of God and to lead God's people and so on, but maybe given them a special calling, a special orientation uh, to kind of fill a gap that might exist in the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, I know my good friend, John Piper feels that way. He and I've talked about this many times that he feels like his primary calling amidst all the other things that he teaches is on Christian hedonism mm-hmm. and the sovereignty of God. And um, the, the Lord has just, I guess, think sovereignly placed on my heart, the urgent need for churches to embrace both the word and spirit, not one to the exclusion of the other, mm-hmm. that we have to be rooted in the word of God. We have to, I believe, preach and teach expositionally verse by verse. We have to dig deeply in the inspired text and everything we do and say and practice has to be an expression of what we find in scripture. Um, and um, at the same time, you got to be careful that we don't let our heads get swollen, become theological Pharisees, or arrogant cynics, but we have to be not just open to, but actively praying for pursuing the fullness of the Spirit's power. And sadly, what I see in probably the majority of churches, regardless of their denominational affiliation, is that they gravitate toward one or the other. Uh, One ultimately ends up trumping the other in such a way um, that it, 
it becomes very impractical in the life of the church. And so mm-hmm. I just felt, I felt this calling, um, and God seems to have reaffirmed it uh, in terms of my both speaking and writing ministry to call people to a convergence of word and spirit. Um, and that's, that's really what launched me on this. And, uh, kind of the rest is just kind of history, I guess. And I think one of the reasons, honestly, why, for example, uh, the book, Understanding Spiritual Gifts, a comprehensive guide and all its sequel that also came out last year is under, no, came out this year. I'm sorry. Understanding Spiritual Warfare, a comprehensive guide. Great. Uh, it's about the same length. Um, currently downloading. Yeah. Is that honestly, nobody else is writing on this. Yeah. Um, I mean, the people who are writing on spiritual gifts, sadly, are coming from a word of faith or health and wealth prosperity gospel approach. Mm-hmm. Um, people who write on the gift of tongues are insisting that everybody should have the gift. And if you don't, you're not truly loved of God or you're not truly right. committed. Uh, people writing on spiritual warfare either deny the uh, reality of the demonic or minimize it. Or they go to the other extreme, and every sin is a result of some particular demonic spirit. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I just didn't see in the body of Christ um, across the broad spectrum an approach that took seriously what Scripture says about spiritual gifts, their importance, how they function, as well as spiritual warfare, as well as gifts that are controversial like tongues. So I just stepped into that gap, mm-hmm. and. Um, Felt like God has blessed it, and I, hopefully it's been of help to a lot of people because, um, you know, people ask me for good books on these subjects, and I don't want to sound self-serving, but yeah. there aren't many that I can recommend. Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe I better write them. So that's basically what I've been doing. Yeah, and for those of you who haven't read any of, um, he told me to call him Sam, but at least for this one Please. time, I'm going to call him Dr. Storms. For those of <laughs> you who haven't read any of Dr. Storms' books, uh, his work on gifts of the Holy Spirit is it is uh exhaustive it is uh so thorough and so deep um so i'm tempted to ask kind of going back to how your own experience you you couldn't come to any biblically backed conclusion that the gifts had ceased but maybe a better way to ask the question because i feel like the subject of theology will come up in that is what do you see are the key roadblocks to people embracing gifts uh as continuing today and even beyond that embracing the actual practice of the gifts maybe they're a pastor or maybe they're a small group leader um and they just they're trying to get over that hump of how to actually embrace the practice of gifts yeah well there are a lot of ways to answer but i'll start with the one that i think is probably uh the primary factor one word fear Mm -hmm. they're just afraid and their fear operates on several levels the fear of losing control the fear of dividing their church and driving people away. But most important of all, I think it's the fear of fanaticism. Mm -hmm. They see excesses and extremes. Um, There's so many people that think, well, if you, if you believe in the operation of the gifts today, that must mean that uh, uh, you believe that it's God's will to heal everybody all the time and that everybody should speak in tongues and that God wants you to be wealthy and never suffer from any kind of, disease or affliction. And they've seen such poor representations on television and on the internet of those who have honestly become an embarrassment to the cause of Christ. Mm-hmm. And they think, wait a minute, is, is that what I'm supposed to become? Is that, is that what you're asking me to embrace? And it's that fear of guilt by association, the fear of uh, mm-hmm. 
of, of, of being somehow linked with those kinds of excesses that keep a lot of people away. I think in addition to fear, um, honestly, there's the lack of experience. I have a very good friend. You'd know him if I mentioned his name, so I won't. But he is kind of a cessationist, maybe a little more than functional. Theologically, he, he's still probably in the camp that doesn't believe these things existed beyond the first century. Mm-hmm. And um, we were talking about it. Uh, and we were, in fact, were engaged in a little bit of a debate publicly on it. And so I said, um, he said, well, one of the reasons why I just can't embrace this is I just, I've never seen this uh, before my very eyes. I've never witnessed these gifts being used properly. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'm just going to call him um, Mike. That's not his name. I said, Mike, how many charismatic churches have you ever visited on a consistent basis or conferences that you've attended mm-hmm. where these things have been done well? And he thought for a moment. He said, none. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> is there any surprise why you haven't seen these things happen? Right. You've never exposed yourself to them. And probably the only exposure you've had is to those who've done it badly. And that's right. prejudiced you against those who do it. I think in a biblical and Christ exalting way. So I think there's that there's lack of experience. It's funny, you know, uh, ironically um, charismatics like myself are accused of basing our theology on our experience. Right. Well, actually many times it's the cessationist lack of experience on which he bases his theology. I agree. Then I think in addition to that bottom line is just, uh, I hate to use this word. It sounds real critical ignorance. They don't know what the New Testament says. Mm-hmm. Um, they have maybe heard a few sermons. Uh, they've had warnings issued like, oh, really steer clear of this because it's going to derail you or you're going you're to open yourself up to a demonic spirit. Mm-hmm. And they just don't know what the Bible actually says. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you actually sit down and you read the Bible, you realize, first of all, that spiritual gifts were never the problem. It's immature, unspiritual people that were the problem. Mm. Arrogant ambitious people. Um, but gifts are, they come from God. I mean, they're, they're his idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there's a problem with spiritual gifts, lay the blame at God's feet because he's mm-hmm. the one who thought them up. He's mm-hmm. the one who bestows them. He's the one who empowers them. So I think all those things, uh, fear, ignorance, lack of experience, bad, uh, bad memories of things that they have seen. Uh, they hear stories about churches that have split. Um, they see maybe some in the extreme uh, wings of the charismatic world who basically say that you're not really spiritual uh, or spirit-filled unless you embrace what we believe and practice it. Mm-hmm. I think all these things combine. Uh, and I think also there's just a lot of misconception, and that goes along with the, the whole concept of ignorance. There's a lot of misunderstanding of what uh, the New Testament really says about these things. That's why I felt the urgency and the responsibility to write these books. Not that I'm, not that I'm perfect in them. Not that I'm going to answer everybody's objections, but I tried to address all the objections. But by the way, one more um, fundamental theological reason why people are reluctant—they've mm-hmm. bought into the idea that the ongoing operation of revelatory gifts of the Spirit is a threat to mm-hmm. the finality and sufficiency of Scripture. Absolutely. That if we believe the Spirit of God still speaks outside of, but never contrary to Scripture, uh, we're compromising the finality of the biblical canon. That is probably the single um, most influential theological argument that people bring to bear. Mm-hmm. So that you would say, because this is my next question, was going to be, uh, 
when it comes to the cessationist argument, um, what do they put forward as their reasoning? Because as you pointed out, the irony seems to be that those who are absolutely committed to biblical fidelity seem to have the least biblical case for their position. That doesn't mean that they don't attempt to put together some kind of biblical case. So is is that kind of the thrust of it? Is that it undermines the finality of Scripture? It is. That is the single most oft-heard response. When I press cessationist friends of mine, give me a text of Scripture. Mm-hmm. They can't do it. They know that 1 Corinthians 13 is actually, as my friend Tom Schreiner, who's a cessationist, wrote in his book, mm-hmm. that's the most convincing text for continuationism. Mm-hmm. So they don't use 1 Corinthians 13 anymore. They don't really use Hebrews 2 any longer. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, the only argument that I hear on a consistent basis is, well, and here's again, here's the fanatical fear element that enters in. There are people in the history of the church and even in the present day charismatic world who tend to elevate so-called prophetic revelation that they're hearing from the Holy Spirit above the authority of Scripture. Mm. And some of them have even horribly used it to justify their disobedience to Scripture. Well, I heard from the Spirit directly. That that weighs preeminently in my heart. Mm-hmm. And that is disastrous. And so they, they've, seen, uh, they've seen certain charismatics neglect the Word of God because of this belief in the immediate revelatory work of the Spirit. So all of that's kind of a, 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 wrap, a package wrapped up in one. Mm-hmm. That's the principal argument that I hear. I don't um, in fact, I was doing a podcast with a group in California. Um, I won't mention who they were just a couple of weeks ago. And it was a class and they wanted me to come and present my view. The only pushback I got repeatedly was, um, you know, if, if, if the spirit of God is still speaking, why don't we have 67 books of the Bible? And uh, what do we do about uh, the finality of the canon? And you're saying that the Bible is not sufficient for Christian living. That was the only argument I heard. And what do you say to that? I say it's precisely because I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture that I believe in the revelatory gifts. Mm-hmm. Let's define what we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture. Great. I think everybody would agree. I, I haven't had any cessationists disagree with me. It means we believe that the, the written Word of God, the 66 books of the biblical canon, tell us everything that we need to do and pursue and practice to live Christ-exalting lives, and provides us with every warning of those things that we need to avoid and to be leery of. So when you have that as a criterion or a definition, which I think all would agree to, they might want to expand it a little bit more, but they all agree to that. Then I ask the question, all right, what does the all-sufficient scripture say about spiritual gifts? Mm-hmm. It says, earnestly desire them, especially that you may prophesy. and Do not forbid speaking in tongues and <laughs> do not quench the spirit by despising prophetic utterances. I said, your all-sufficient scriptures teach you repeatedly that these gifts are God's blessing, his tools for building the kingdom, uh, for blessing and building up his people. I said, nowhere does the all-sufficient scripture say, hey, be careful about spiritual gifts. They're dangerous. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's going to open you up to demonic influence. The only thing the all-sufficient scriptures say to do is to earnestly desire these gifts, and here's how to practice them. and so it seems to me, if you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, you have to be a continuationist. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't like me saying that, but <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> yeah, and I would say, for me personally, and I'm, it sounds like for you as well from reading your material, that 
you have plenty of experiences to align with what the scriptures teach. Um, yes. So it's not that we build our life off of experience, but we certainly look for experience to align with scripture. Yeah. And if it doesn't, we reject it. Experience serves to confirm what we see in scripture, but I hope I would never base my theological beliefs and practices on either my experience or my lack thereof. Mm -hmm. One of the other arguments that I feel like I hear leveled is that, um, particularly, I suppose the the what some would refer to as the power gifts were strictly for the apostles. Um, there's a scripture that they point to for that. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. Second I feel like Corinthians I, twelve twelve. What does that scripture say? Second Corinthians twelve twelve. I will read it to you because the ESV translation is much better than the NIV and the uh, New American Standard. I've got it here. Yeah, if it you says want me this. To read it. Go ahead. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Right. And some translations render that they translate it in such a way that Paul is represented as saying that the signs of a true apostle are signs and wonders and mighty works. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not what the, uh, the the Greek grammar would allow. Mm-hmm. Um, the signs of a true apostle is in the nominative case. Signs, wonders, and mighty works is in the dative case. He's saying the signs of a true apostle were performed among you, and they were accompanied by signs, wonders, and mighty works. But nowhere does the New Testament say that signs, wonders, and spiritual gifts of a supernatural, excuse me, a supernatural character were exclusively apostolic. Mm-hmm. If that were the case, how do you have uh, Acts chapter 2 mm-hmm. um, in fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, Peter telling us that characteristic of this new covenant age is the fact that all Christians now have the fullness of the Spirit, mm-hmm. and they will dream dreams and have visions and prophesy. Mm-hmm. Uh most of the people whom he was describing on the day of Pentecost, they weren't apostles. Mm-hmm. You have non-apostolic Christians like Stephen and Philip and Ananias mm-hmm. and the four daughters of Philip and the believers in Thessalonica and the believers in Rome and the believers in Galatia, mm-hmm. all of the believers in Corinth, all of these people exercising these supernatural miraculous gifts and apostles are nowhere to be found. They're not mentioned. So uh, I don't know. You know, just the, the idea that somehow these gifts were uniquely tied to the apostles, just simply not true. It's not biblical. Certainly the apostles operated in these giftings, these power ministries, but they weren't the only ones. Um, I, I give you, gosh, at least a dozen counterexamples, which I do in my book, uh, that demonstrate that, I mean, think for a moment, uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, mm-hmm. and he's saying, look, the Spirit of God has distributed gifts according to His will among you average non-apostolic Corinthian mm-hmm. believers. Mm-hmm. And listen, here are some of those gifts. Word of knowledge, word of wisdom, prophecy, discern of spirits, healings, tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles. Mm-hmm. He says these were given for the common good, 1 Corinthians twelve seven to build you up. Those are vast, vast, vast majority, what, 95, 98% of those people about whom he's speaking weren't apostles. Right, And this is pretty much the case all through the rest of the New Testament. So there's simply no way that you can prove from Scripture that these kinds of power gifts or ministries were uniquely exercised by or the kind of the the private possession of apostles and them only. It's just not true. 
Yeah, I think also too of First Corinthians one, where he talks about how the Corinthian church was lacking in none of the gifts. He says something along those lines. Well, like um, take take uh, Acts twenty one, mm-hmm. where um, Philip's four daughters are called prophetesses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, <laughs> what do you do with that? <laughs> yeah, or were they apostles? <laughs> right. No. No, they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was answering your rhetorical question. <laughs> uh, let me, um, let's drill in a little. I want to talk about tongues a little bit, and then I want to zoom kind of out for a moment uh, and just talk some like pastoral application for some of this stuff. Uh, you had talked about how prophetic revelation tends to be one of the more controversial gifts because of the whole discussion around biblical finality. I find certainly one of the other more controversial gifts is speaking in tongues. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I grew up in a fairly Pentecostal environment. So I've been in all the church services where we're speaking in tongues and there's no interpretation and, and all that. And certainly some of what you have to say about that convicts me, um, which I welcome, by the way. However, let's just talk about the subject of tongues in general. Uh, in fact, I had a two-hour discussion with a friend of mine the other night um, who's wrestling through this subject. He went to a Pentecostal church for the first time while he was out of town, <laughs> and <laughs> he was not prepared <laughs> for that experience. Not and then like two days it. later, had a conversation with a, a Baptist fundamentalist pastor who was like, obviously not stoked on that. So um, I'm just talking him through that, and uh, he had a lot of great questions. Um, so I, let me just pass the burden on to you for a moment. I, I feel like I did a decent job answering Storms, <laughs> um, but you'll certainly do better. So uh, tongues, can it be unintelligible or does it have to be a known human language? Yeah, that's one of the, maybe the primary argument cessationists employ. Mm-hmm. They say uh, linguistic experts have recorded people speaking in tongues and they have found no, at least, I say no, there might have been an exception here or there, but by and large, no parallel with any known human dialect. Um, The argument that tongues are always human languages spoken somewhere in the world is derived from Acts 2, because very clearly, I acknowledge openly in my book that the tongue speech on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 were known dialects, that Mm -hmm. people who were in Jerusalem for the Passover heard uh, their own languages. Uh, That's very clear. but. The cessationist then concludes, oh, that, that's the, the criterion, the paradigm, if you will, the standard by which all tongue speech has to be measured. And I say, why do you conclude that? Right. Uh, let's, let's examine the rest of the book of Acts, for example. So um, cessationists basically argue that tongues is a known human language that is designed to serve as a sign gift to unbelievers to evangelize them or to pronounce God's judgment upon them. I say, well, if if that's the case, explain to me something. Why is it that in the only other two instances where tongues appears in the book of Acts is in chapter 10 and chapter 19, Mm -hmm. and no unbelievers are present? Present. Mm -hmm. If that's the purpose of tongues, why is it that when Cornelius gets saved, he and his companions speak in tongues in the presence of Peter and other Christian believers? Why is it that in Acts 19, when the disciples of John the Baptist get saved and they prophesy and speak in tongues, only Paul and his companions are present? Mm-hmm. If if the gift of tongues has for its purpose what the cessationist says, mm-hmm. that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Furthermore, when you come to 1 Corinthians 14, well, there's so many arguments, and you know them because I, I delineated them in my book, The Language of Heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul talks about a variety of species or different kinds of tongues. Mm-hmm. Um, when you come to 1 Corinthians 14, 2, the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for he speaks mysteries and no one understands him. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, wait a minute. What is a human language? It's a man speaking to another person. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly people would understand whoever speaks that language would understand it. He's not speaking mysteries because a lot of people could make sense of just like they did on the day of Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems to me that Paul is saying that there is an expression of tongue speech that is uniquely crafted by the Holy spirit that is unintelligible, both to the person speaking and to those listening, unless God grants the gift of interpretation to another person to bring that into the vernacular, as it were. So I think there are a number of reasons why um, tongue speech predominantly, especially in 1 Corinthians, and I think in most of the charismatic world today, is not human languages spoken somewhere in the world, although I've known some instances where that has happened. Vast, vast majority of instances, I think it is what I call heavenly language. It is the Spirit of God who has enabled a person to articulate in ways that are unintelligible to them their deepest, most heartfelt needs and desires to God. And it's only important that God understand it. If it's going to be used in the corporate assembly, as you just mentioned a moment ago, I believe there has to be interpretation. Mm -hmm. Because in the corporate assembly, the purpose is primarily horizontal. What I mean by that is we're there to build each other up. Well, you can't be built up if you don't understand what I'm saying. That's why Paul says, if you're going to speak in tongues in the assembly, have to interpret. In the absence of interpretation, keep silent, do it in your own private devotions. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my brief take on tongues. Um, I, You know, you asked earlier, why, what are some of the arguments that cessationists use? Well, your friend's experience is one of them. Mm-hmm. They hear maybe what we're saying about tongues, then they go to a church in which maybe 10 minutes in the corporate service, everybody's speaking in tongues out loud and there's no interpretation. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, wait a minute. That seems to be explicitly contrary to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, which it is. And so they say, wow, they're doing this so unbiblically, I guess that means it's not a real gift. Well, yes, they're doing it unbiblically, but that doesn't mean it's not a real gift. Every spiritual gift can be abused. Teaching can be abused. Mm-hmm evangelism can be abused. All gifts can be abused, but that doesn't mean they're not from God. Is it even fair to say that all gifts can be demonically counterfeited by the powers of darkness? Sure. And if that, if a, if a gift being, having the possibility of being used falsely were our barometer for whether or not we should use it, then we shouldn't use any of them. Yeah, it's exactly, I always ask people this question. Have you ever heard a preacher that you regarded as pretty biblical and good teach something from God's word that was wrong. He misinterpreted the text, misapplied the text. Every person I've ever asked that says yes. Because I say, I've taught a lot of wrong things over the years. I've had to recant. My theology has developed and changed as I've studied more. Mm -hmm. Um, But because I misused my gift in interpreting God's revelation in front of me, doesn't mean that the gift of teaching is spurious or the gift of teaching is therefore demonic and we should ban it from the local church. Mm I've seen people with the gift of evangelism get overly um, energized and browbeat and manipulate non-believers. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we should stop evangelizing. It doesn't mean that's not a spiritual gift. 
Right. Uh, think about administration or leading. We've seen some really bad administrators in the church. That doesn't mean that gift is of the devil or just means that people are broken, weak, and selfish, and ambitious, and prideful, and they misuse God's gifts. Going back to the variety of tongues, and we'll move on from the subject after that, but uh, so speaking in known human languages that were previously unknown to the speaker is one of the varieties. Right. Speaking in what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14 too, as something that is uh, a mystery in the spirit spoken to God, not to man. Uh, I believe he even goes on to say that not even the speaker himself, or he says no one understands him. Right. Um, and I am I correct in uh, assuming there that not even the speaker understands what he's saying in that regard? Unless the speaker is given the gift of interpretation. Remember Which 1 Corinthians 14, uh, what, 12 or 13, mm-hmm. let the person who prays in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Right. So, And he may be given that gift. He may not be. Right. Exactly. And then Paul says something interesting in 1 Corinthians 13, where he's talking about, you know, the foundation of love in the use of all the gifts. What's our motivation? He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, are we to take from that that there's another variety of tongues that is somehow angelic? I believe so. Now, again, virtually all cessationists insist that Paul is simply speaking in exaggerated terms. Mm. He's using hyperbole. He's saying, oh, wow, if I, if I could speak in all these various ways, not necessarily endorsing the fact that those ways really exist. But what? don't we think that angels have their own dialects? We, I mean, that we know they spoke Hebrew and they spoke Aramaic because of their activity in the book of Daniel. We know they spoke Greek. Um, well, I'm assuming that angels speak English. I mean, they, I'm assuming speak, they can speak any human language. Sure, any human language, if God sends them and dispatches mm-hmm. them, as we read all through Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in what language did um, did the angel speak to Peter in Acts chapter 12 when he was in prison? He said, rise up and come on, let's get out of here. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm assuming he spoke in Greek, maybe in Aramaic. Uh, why do we assume that lang- angels only speak in human dialects? Right. Would it? Not, I mean, if there are millions and millions of angels, they all have differing responsibilities maybe even a hierarchy uh, of angelic authority. It's possible, I would think. I would think it's probable that there are a variety of different angelic dialects. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's, why would we conclude that they only speak one when we know that they can speak several human languages? Now, again, I can't prove that, mm-hmm. but it seems reasonable that when Paul talks about the tongues of angels, that he's suggesting that, yeah, this is a possibility for some people to be given that particular kind of gifting. It seems to make sense to me. I think one of the points that you make uh, in the language of heaven is about um, uh, an uninterpreted tongue is primarily prayer or praise. Am I remembering that correctly? And thanksgiving. Uh, And thanksgiving. And so uh, if one of the primary functions of angels is to praise God, (laughs) holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, um, then it it would not seem too outlandish to me to join in that heavenly praise. I agree. I agree. Super good. Let's talk pastorally for a moment, and then we we can broaden our our discussion. Um, How do you see the practical outworking of the the spiritual gifts? And when I say spiritual gifts, I don't just mean power gifts, even though that's what we've been focusing on. Let's think the whole gamut, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Um, How do you see that working out in a church? 
from what I can kind of imbibe is that there seems to be kind of two either intentional or incidental ways of thinking about it. One is that spiritual gifts are kind of like a spoke on the wheel and they're, they're part of a, a healthy church experience that keeps the, the wheel moving. The other is that gifts are uh, a kind of the primary organizational tool that God has given us for the organization of ministry and for the healthy flourishing of a church. So it's not an appendage as much as it is, uh, it's it's kind of the motor of the of the machine, so to speak. Yeah. Where do you net out on that? And pastor, I mean, you are a pastor. You have a right. You pastor a congregation. So how do you apply all this practically? I wouldn't. I wouldn't take either of those views as like it's a just a spoke and an appendage, a peripheral uh, expression of ministry in the church. Nor would I say that it's the center or the hub or the the primary um, organizational approach to Christian life and ministry. I, I wouldn't take either of those views. Um, I mean, I, I just, all I can do is give you the example of Bridgeway. Um, we encourage people to make use of these gifts in small groups. We call them community groups. There's more freedom there. People know each other. They're willing to take risks where otherwise they might keep silent. Um, there's great accountability in those small groups better capacity to learn, especially learn from one's mistakes. Um, it's not the only thing that our small groups do. They also study the word, they pray, they encourage each other. Um, in our Sunday morning services, just give you last Sunday, um, not yes, not just the most recent, but I guess it's a week, uh, eight, eight days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm preaching through Romans. So I preach a fairly expository, pretty rigorously theological sermon on Romans 11, uh, 1 through 10. And um, afterwards, we have rather passionate and exuberant and expressive worship. All of our the songs we sing are rooted in Scripture. We won't sing anything that's unbiblical. Uh, as long as it's biblical, we really don't care where it comes from or who wrote it. Um, and that goes on for about 30 minutes. Um, and then after that, we have about 10 to 15 minutes of platform prophetic ministry. Uh, so a man got up and, uh, uh, he had two or three words of knowledge for people that were spot on accurate. Um, another person had, uh, also a word of knowledge for an individual. We would pray for them. We have trained prayer ministers in our church. We call them to the front. We always pray for the sick every single Sunday. Hmm. Uh, we invite people to come to receive prayer for that, for other things. I mean, yesterday, for example, uh, where we, it's okay to say we're recording this on Monday. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, you, um, I got up and I said, hey, folks, I just have a real strong sense, and I don't even know if this is from the Lord. I think it may just be from reading the newspaper. <laughs> People are suffering from COVID fatigue. I'm suffering from COVID fatigue. Mm-hmm. I'm worn out. I'm frustrated. I don't know if it's ever going to change. It's depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's had so many adverse effects on so many aspects of life. If you're suffering from some expression of COVID fatigue, come up here and let us pray for you. Let mm-hmm. us ask the spirit of God to minister to your heart and to remind you of the promises of God and, and, and the fact that, uh, he's going to bring ultimate good, even out of our worst of suffering. So we have spiritual gifts operating on a Sunday morning in small groups. We'll have, uh, for example, on, uh, 
starting on Thursday night. We have a class called Healing and Freedom, and it'll be eight weeks in a row. And in that class, they talk about uh, the the work of the Spirit. So I, let me come back. Pause right there. What then is the organizational driving force? It's the work of the Holy Spirit in taking the Word of God, um, bringing it to bear on the lives of the people of God. Well, the work of the Spirit is also in bringing healing to hearts that have been broken, people who are living in bondage to unforgiveness, who are unrepentant, who are addicted to various substances or behaviors, uh, people who uh, who live in the midst of shame and fear and self-loathing and uh, bitterness and even demonic oppression. And so we have a class runs two hours for eight consecutive weeks on Thursday night in which we minister to those people and we instruct them from the word and we pray for them. So all of these aspects of ministry, um, you know, we have a, we have a, what we call a mobilization team. And I think in fact, next Sunday, um, they are having a, a, a meeting in the right after the service to eat lunch, to pray for one another. Then they're going to go out to the shopping mall and share the gospel. Well, that is that's as much charismatic life as is speaking in tongues mm-hmm. is preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the spirit, mm-hmm. trusting that he will lead us to the right people. And mm-hmm. according to his sovereign will, open their hearts to the truth of who Jesus is. So there's just a variety of different ways in which we, um, exer- in which we try to operate in the power of the Holy spirit, whether that's in gifts or preaching, teaching, prayer, worship, evangelism, so it would be fair to say that you you just seek to give expression to as many of the gifts as possible. Yes. Yeah, in an ongoing basis. Yeah, but I don't think anybody who attends Bridgeway would ever say that that's the single most important thing we do. Right. I don't think anybody would say that. Yep. Um, you, you couldn't draw that conclusion from being a part of our church. I think you would say it's a very important part and we're not going to neglect it, um, but you know, our, our mission statement is we exist to exalt Christ in the city through joyful satisfaction in him. Everything is built around that goal mm-hmm. and spiritual gifts serve that end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but spiritual gifts are a means. They're not the end. Mm-hmm. They're instruments to achieve the, and to cultivate the fruit of the spirit in the lives of God's people. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about demons. You talk, you mentioned demons, mm-hmm. demonic <laughs> oppression. I have a feeling that people listening to this podcast Probably their ears perked up at that moment. Yep. Like, ah, I wish they'd talk more about Talk more that. about the demons. Let's talk about the demons. Um, can a Christian be demonized? Let me use that word. Yeah, I have an entire chapter in my book, Understanding Spiritual Warfare, entitled, Can Christians Be Demonized? And I go into all the arguments I've, I've read widely on this subject, and I address every biblical text and every argument, both pro and con. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line is there's no text that explicitly either affirms or denies the possibility. Mm-hmm. Now, let me define demonized. Yep. That was going to uh, be my next question. <laughs> yeah. All Christians can be attacked, harassed, oppressed, tempted, um, beat up on, however you want to describe it. Um, the question, though, is can a Christian have a demon inhabiting them, dwelling mm-hmm. within them? Mm-hmm. Now, it might surprise some people to realize that I believe the answer to that is yes. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's anything in the New Testament that prohibits that possibility. Um, I think there are some texts that 
You know, Paul says in Ephesians 4, don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil a foothold, a place. He uses the Greek word tapas, uh, an inhabited space in your life. Um, so again, unrepentant sin can open the door to a demonic presence. Um, so I think the answer is kind of a modified yes. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think it's really critically important. The question is not so much what can a demon do to us, but what has Christ given us the authority to do to them? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's to me the most central theme in spiritual warfare in Luke chapter 10. He says to the disciples, again, not apostles, just average, 72 average followers, no elders, no pastors, you know, no college grads. Mm -hmm. And he says, I have given you. Thank God. <laughs> I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. Um, Amen. So in Christ's name, we have that authority and we need to exercise it. But, um, I, you know, one reason, and again, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying my experience dictates my belief. But I've had dozens of instances of dealing with people I know were born again mm -hmm. who were very clearly demonized. Mm -hmm. My wife would even give testimony to that. Um, and she was experienced an incredible deliverance um, in 1993. Um, gosh, we'd been married 21 years by then. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just, yeah, so I, I just I just see it over and over and over again. Um now, again, that just simply serves to confirm what I suspect the Bible teaches. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't think there's any way we can be dogmatic in trying to answer that question. I understand mm -hmm. why people say no. I believe the weight of evidence would say yes. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of a man named John Thompson? John Thompson. He's another Canadian guy. It's, the reason I think of it is because he, he has a book um, that is also called Convergence. That's around the same themes of charismatic uh, and, uh, well, what, I have you know. the name. Now that okay. I'm, I've had people mention him before to me, but I don't think I've read anything he's written. Okay. Um, and then he has uh, a book that just came out recently called Deliverance. That's mm -hmm. about um, uh, demonization as well. So this is interesting that you guys have write about similar themes. He's a, a younger guy than you. I, um, Most people but. are. <laughs> <laughs> I only mean to say that you probably wrote your books, you know, long before these subjects came to him. I'm not sure, but um, that's, that's helpful. I think I'm tempted to ask, are there symptoms that we should be aware of when it comes to demonization or is that an unsafe question? Uh, oftentimes there are symptoms. I think the mistake people make, is that they think that it's only the people who froth at the mouth and flail around and uh, shout obscenities. Uh, those are the only demonized people. When in fact, I think Satan is far more subtle, far more crafty than that. And I've seen so many individuals who are so in bondage to unforgiveness and they, they just seethe with bitterness and rage against somebody that doesn't show itself in some sort of outburst or manifestation, right. but it paralyzes their relationship with the Lord. It crushes the hope for intimacy with Christ. And they just, it, it's just debilitating. Mm. And I think the enemy can do things like that uh, far more frequently than he would, you know, some scene that might come out of the movie, the exorcist. Um, 
So, you know, think about how wise he is in his strategy. If most Christians think that, you know, Linda Blair and the exorcist with her head spinning and she's spewing pea soup, that's what it means to be demonized. Well, I don't see that. Therefore, I must conclude that none of these people are demonized. Mm -hmm. When in fact, um, demonization has varying degrees. It can exist exist on a spectrum. Um, Sometimes it's, you know, it's just manifest in certain low-grade addictions in life. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are individuals that we deal with in our in our prayer and healing ministry here um who uh, who just live in a constant feeling of inadequacy they feel disqualified mm-hmm. it's not because they've committed any scandalous sin uh could they could this be the result of an indwelling in, in demonic spirit could be not necessarily but it could be so yeah there are a variety of symptoms you know the ones we read about for example in mark with a gathering demoniac who's gashing himself with stones and, and uh, living naked in a cave. Uh, that's very rare. Mm-hmm. I think of, is it Luke 18 where the woman was bent over for Luke 13, Luke 13 yeah. for, was it 18 years? Maybe that's the number yeah. I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. It was 18 um, years. And Jesus said that she was what, oppressed by the devil. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. That's one of the texts that I interact with, whether or not that, doesn't explicitly say it. it says she had a spirit of infirmity. Hmm. Um, but interestingly, in numerous other texts where demonization is undeniably present, it says this person has or had a demon. Hmm. Well, that's very similar language to what we find in Luke 13. So it may be that she was, in fact, demonized. But then the question is, was she a believer? Right. So you say, well, she's called a, a child of Abraham. Well, does that just mean she's a Jew or does it mean she's actually... Um, a true believer. So it's hard to say. Yeah, I believe uh, some would say that Luke's usage of the phrase child of Abraham, him writing this gospel after the death and resurrection of Christ would, I guess, is his way of indicating that there's some level of saving faith in that woman. Maybe maybe there was. Mm-hmm. Um, let's shift gears. Let's talk progressive Christianity, deconstructionism. This is a feature of our podcast. <laughs> Sam, we like to talk about this subject a lot uh, because Mike over here is deconstructing, um, honestly, at an alarming rate. And yeah, so- that's why we started the podcast, honestly. <laughs> this is all for the salvation of his very lost soul. <laughs> the, the reason I wanted to talk about it with you is because I just wondered, you, you mentioned this idea in Pleasures Evermore of uh, people getting bored with God. And that really struck me. Um, and I just wondered, is there any connection between uh, people seeking, being driven by experience now, which is, I guess, is kind of one way you could describe progressive Christianity and deconstruction is really driven by experience, driven by emotion, um, driven by uh, the the psychology of the age that we live in <laughs> versus being guided by biblical fidelity. Um, does our mishandling of the spiritual gifts uh, up until this cultural moment, our either shutting down of them or our abuse of them, seeking experiences that were unbiblical experiences, do you see a connection between any of that and where a lot of uh, Michael and I's generation um, are at spiritually right now? Um, I'm sure there are some instances of that. I know of one particular case, the uh, 
the adult son of a good friend of mine who was so wounded by overly zealous charismatics operating in what they thought was prophetic gifting that he took a deep offense. And that's kind of been his excuse for just wandering away from the faith. But I don't think that's the primary reason. I think there's a kind of a, a handful of, of things. Number one, mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of these people who are deconstructing, walking away, were raised in churches that were excessively legalistic and self-righteous and judgmental. And either they were hurt or wounded by that, or somebody they know and love was hurt and wounded by that. I think secondly, uh, you mentioned the spirit of the culture and of the age. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole emergence of the LGBTQ uh, phenomenon and the idea that, well, if you really love somebody, you have to affirm their life choices, no matter what it may be. Right. And they see the Christian church taking a strong stand against those expressions, those lifestyles. Mm-hmm. And they think, oh, you're just mean. Mm-hmm. You're mean. You're, you're, you're nasty. And why can't you just let people live the way they want to live? And then on top of that, um, the, um, sadly, uh, all too often the, close identification of conservative evangelical Christianity with a particular political party or um, uh, political persuasion, um, they think, oh, that that's what Christianity is. And again, I'm not speaking here, but pro or con, I'm just saying this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you like Donald Trump. You voted for Trump. That's what it means to be a Christian. I think I'll go in the other direction. And I'm not passing judgment on Trump there. I'm just saying that's an example. For sure. Um, I think on top of that, the the claim to exclusivity is a major reason for deconstruction. Uh, how can you dare say that my civil, law-abiding, kind, compassionate, atheistic friend um, is destined for eternal damnation simply because they won't believe in Jesus? Mm-hmm. Certainly, if there is a God, there have got to be a multiplicity of ways. It can't be that exclusive. I think all of those factors have played into the whole deconstruction phenomenon, mm-hmm. bad experiences in the church. Um, and again, this, this is the, and the interesting thing, and I know you guys have probably seen this, um, very rarely anymore will somebody who's deconstructing sit down and actually argue with you about doctrine mm-hmm. and about theology. What they basically simply say is you're mean. Mm-hmm. I don't, you're just mean. You, you don't have real love toward people who are different from you. Um, you know, that, that's just something we have to deal with. We have to, th- th- this whole concept of love is love, which is a profound lie. We've got this idea that we've defined love as being the unconditional affirmation and acceptance of what anybody chooses to do or believe in life. Love is doing Whatever serves best to promote both the temporal and eternal welfare of another soul. That's right. what love is. Yep. And if they're walking down a path or they're believing something or they're engaging in some lifestyle that the Bible says puts their souls in jeopardy of eternal condemnation, mm-hmm. it is not loving of me to affirm them in that. The most loving thing I can do is to call them to a biblical sex ethic to a biblical lifestyle, to a biblical belief. That's not meanness. The the most profound expression of love is pointing them to that belief and that form of behavior 
that is most conducive to their eternal welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's my take on deconstruction. <laughs> so Mike, don't deconstruct. I'll do my best. That was really compelling. <laughs> He's not deconstructing. <laughs> um, I'm tempted to go lots of different places with this. You're an, you are an amillennialist, which means that you believe we are presently living in the millennium as described in Revelation 20. Uh, not quite. Okay. What do you believe? I am an amillennialist. I believe the millennial reign of Revelation 20 is describing what's happening in the intermediate state in heaven. Yes. Uh, those who present- have died in faith in Christ are sharing the the reign of Christ. They are co-regents with him uh, throughout the course of this present age. So right. I would say the millennial reign is primarily what those believers in the presence of the Lord Jesus are experiencing, not so much what we are experiencing on earth in the church. Now, that one variety right. of amillennialism does believe that it's the uh, experience of the saints in the church in the present age. I think it's the experience of those who have died and are now presently with Christ uh, in the intermediate state. That's what I think the millennium is. That's a good distinction. Thank you for making that. Um, and I guess that kind of ties into where I was going with this. As connected to the cultural moment that we're in, um, referring back to that evening of, of eschatology, I think you know the two viewpoints that I love seeing go up against one another are your own and uh, Douglas Wilson's with mm-hmm. his uh, uh, post-mill position. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I wrestle with a lot as a Christian who believes in bringing uh, the light of Christ into the world is the degree to which we should not just hope for, but even pursue the Christianization of society. Um, And I suppose your distinction there in terms of the millennium being something experienced by those who have died and are in the intermediate state with Christ um, right now is good because what you're saying in that is that we on the earth are not experiencing any kind of millennial reign and therefore should not operate according to, I guess, any kind of triumphalism. My question is, um, can you just counsel me for a moment? (laughs) Because we are in the midst of a really weird time, and yeah. it, there does seem like there's a lot going against the church. And I, I, uh, you know, I want to continue to be able to encourage Christians towards um, hopefulness and having an impact on society, which I do believe is inherently part of what we're called to do. Sure, um, salt of the earth, light of the world, all that kind of stuff. However, there needs to be a healthy expectation of suffering and. All of that. Can you put some of those pieces together for me? And do you draw any lines when it comes to like, yes, 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 pursue all that, pursue all that line politics? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I'm actually meeting weekly with two good friends of mine. We're meeting again tomorrow morning at breakfast, uh, working through Wayne Grudem's book, Politics in the Bible, mm-hmm. and uh, we're having some lively debates. But let me just say one thing. I don't believe you can Christianize society until you first Christianize people. Great. Um, In other words, the idea that a minority of individuals can somehow secure control of the legislative process and impose a Christian ethic on the rest of the world, I think is uh, dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't buy into that at all. So the question then becomes twofold. Number one, should we expect 
a what we might call a Christianizing of the majority of the populace of the earth or of our local society, and or what influence and what energy should we devote to the transformation of cultural expressions, educational systems, government, um, athletics, business, finance, and so on. I, I hold out the hope that we are going to see an increase in the salvation of souls as we approach the end of the age. I think there's kind of a simultaneous, um, people think this is a, the, that these are mutually exclusive, ex, uh, mutually exclusive. I don't believe they are. Okay. I think there's a simultaneous increase of demonic activity and the hostility of unbelievers and the persecution of the church simultaneous with an increase in the salvation of souls and the power of the Holy Spirit manifest through the people of God. I think those are two simultaneous realities. Um, and as we approach the end, I think we're going to see greater persecution, greater oppression, greater secularizing of the world as a whole, simultaneous with a glorious spiritual awakening that I trust is going to bring in a great harvest of souls. And I don't think those are mutually exclusive. It's kind of like, if, if I can use this theological language, um, it's the it's the removal of common grace from the unregenerate world. In other words, mm-hmm. the restraining work of the Spirit that keeps uh, sinful souls from being as evil as they possibly could be, I think it's going to gradually be lifted. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be a greater manifestation of wickedness but simultaneous with the withdrawal of common grace is the infusion and the impartation of special grace, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit in helping God's people. Um, so as far as the Christianizing of cultural expressions, educational systems, and so on, I don't expect that to happen prior to the second coming of Jesus. So in that sense, I'm, you know, there are two kinds of postmillennialists. There's a soteriological postmillennialist mm-hmm. who believes that before Christ comes, most of the world will be converted. And then there's the cultural post-millennialist who believes that this increase of believers is going to lead to the Christianizing of, as I said, politics and business and entertainment and athletics and finance and so on. I don't see in Scripture uh, grounds to be confident that there's going to be a great deal of cultural transformation. I think we're just going to see increasing degradation and deterioration, broadly speaking, simultaneous with a greater increase in the number of saved souls and the power of the Holy Spirit through which they can minister the gospel of Jesus. And I think those things are going to happen simultaneously right up to the end. Um, I have friends that believe in a that there's going to be a global mass revival toward the end of the age. I hope they're right. Mm-hmm. I think there's some text that would suggest that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't really see, I don't want to say that our political system in America is unredeemable. <laughs> it's, about, <laughs> it. it's about as, it's about as far gone as, as you can go. Without. What could possibly give you that idea? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just my eyes and my ears are open, unfortunately, and I see it and I hear it every day and I'm sick of it. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question or not. I we we at Bridgeway, for example, would say, wherever you are in life, whatever occupation, whatever circles in which you run, 
Yep. Seek to bring the power of the gospel to bear upon it as best you can. Yep. Um, influence the, the system, influence the principles, help change the culture. Yep. But don't make that the ultimate goal of ministry because you probably end up going to be disappointed. But yep. still seek to influence, seek to shape it and reshape mm-hmm. it. And, uh, you know, start a Bible study during the lunch hour at your place of business. Who knows what might come from that? Mm-hmm. Um, if If more people in your in your office are converted and truly come to trust in Jesus, how will that change the ethics right. uh, that exactly. govern how you do your, uh, your, your business? Yep. But um, so, yeah, I want to, I, I want to call people to influence society and culture as much as, as God would make it possible for them to do. But is that their primary goal? No, I don't think so. Right. Our primary goal would be, well, what what would you say it is? The proclamation of the gospel, mm-hmm. um, equipping people to become increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus, to exalt his name and his glory in whatever area or arena of life they find themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, again, will that have an overflow effect upon their surroundings, their jobs, their relationships? You bet. Yep. But uh, I don't necessarily expect to see the world Christianized in the more corporate cultural sense mm-hmm. uh, as some of our post-millennial brothers mm-hmm. would contend for. And maybe it's not as black and white as the Christianization of the world versus the total and outright oppression of the faith. Uh, when I listen to you describe uh, an increase in the salvation of souls alongside the increase of demonic activity, you're, you're not quite at the place of some kind of soteriological post-millennialism, um, but maybe you're just uh, a long stone's throw away from that in, <laughs> in the sense of a lot of people getting saved. Yeah. And I do think that the natural outworking of a lot of people getting saved uh, is that local communities are impacted by that. And businesses sure. do change the way they do ethics. And maybe local politics is impacted by that. Um, and so I think to me, that's a sliver of hope in the midst of what sometimes can feel like kind of a dark time. Is that if we do, a lot of times people, I think, think that focusing on the proclamation of the gospel is a cop out to uh, a, a, f- a flourishing and bettering society. I see it completely the opposite. And it sounds like that's what you're saying, is that the exactly. proclamation of the gospel is indeed the salvation of any society. Yeah. And I, I just give you one example um, where I don't see much hope, at least in the immediate present, is in our educational institutions, mm-hmm. uh, our universities that by and large have gone radically woke um, talk to us, Dr. Our, Storms. Come on. <laughs> now you're talking our language. Yeah, in which basically <laughs> to uh, <laughs> just holding to a Christian perspective, much less speaking it aloud, is almost um, legally forbidden. You'll be expelled. Right. You'll you'll fail the course. You uh, um, you know you, you my University of Oklahoma, where I graduated. I love the school. We heard recently that uh, one mother said her her granddaughter started there as a freshman. In the first day of class, the teacher said, all right, here's a list of 24 possible pronouns. I need each of you to pick your preferred one, and I will abide by that. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are you going to do with that? Um, I'm going to go with option Jordan Peterson on that one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, we need him down here in the States. That's right. Canada. I think he's, I think it's a lot. Everybody time. send Jordan Peterson an email and tell him to come on our podcast. Mm-hmm. There yes. you go. Yes. Yeah. Go so I, you know, our educational institutions are, 
you know, there's an incre- there are a couple of incredible books. One's called The Coddling of the American Mind. Great book. Which is mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic. And another, I think it's called, uh, is it called The Rise of Microaggression? It's just gotten to the point where you can't even use particular words without being branded as bigoted and hate-filled and suffering marginalization. You just, you get canceled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that word's thrown around a lot. That's exactly what's happening. You get canceled in some capacity. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Carly American Mind, I know you're a big fan of that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What's fascinating about some of these works is, I think that's the author of that is Jonathan Haidt. He co-authored yes. it with somebody else. Mm-hmm. He's not even a Christian. He, I think he's an atheistic Jew. Um, and what's fascinating to me is that there's a a uh, point of agreement between right. those of the Christian faith mm-hmm. and those who are just, I guess, truth lovers um, and recognize, you know, in the example that you're using right there, just the biological reality of, of gender. Um, Dave Chappelle. You know, he'd be in that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well look at look at uh, the lady that wrote all of the uh, Harry Potter books, mm-hmm. right? Who came out, uh, you know, saying there's no, there are only two genders, and it's tied to biology, and she's been massively canceled everywhere, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she's standing her ground, and she's not even a Christian, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, what well, J.K. Rowling is her name? J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, of course, she yep. can afford to do that. She's probably close to being a billionaire. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the Harry Potter. Uh, <laughs> yeah, pocket. exactly. I guess to end it on a spiritual note, that, that is part of the theme that you see in the New Testament is regardless of what you have to lose, um, stand for truth. Hmm. And I, I see that in the, you know, in the, um, uh, the book of Revelation in regards to Babylon's going to have its way and the church is just not to go along with it. Precisely. But of course, the great good news of revelation, everybody says the one thing God wins. God wins. Um, and uh, that's encouraging. Dr. Storms, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. Well, I'm happy to do it. Uh, it's been a joy. And uh, any other time you want me back, just let me know and we'll set it up. We will absolutely we will. have you back on. Definitely we appreciate all your work. If you haven't checked out of any of Dr. Sam Storms books, Please do that. You will love them. You'll find them so very helpful. 